I don't think of one or the other as first, really, I guess. It depends on what I'm working on. And I do tend to, I get focused on a thing and I do that thing while I'm doing that thing. And then when I'm done with that thing, I might get focused on another thing. But that thing doesn't define me forever. I think I'm just a person who likes to tell stories and whatever form that comes in is the form I'm working in at the moment. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello fellow geeks, Angie here, dealing with a touch of con crud from Gallifrey One, which on the day I'm recording this was last week, so bear with me if I cough occasionally or if my voice sounds a little lower than normal. With me today is Patria Burchard, author, actor, audio no- audiobook narrator, and voiceover artist. We met at a writer's group we both belong to when Patria did a presentation on audiobooks. As someone who listens to audiobooks when I have the time, in between podcasts, I was already intrigued. But when she said she was the original English voice of Ryoko from Tenchi Muyo, she had me hooked. <laughs> Patria has written two books, has narrated the Westwick Witches mystery series, and has done both stage and screen, among other things. Welcome to Geek Out. Thank you. Looking over your Wikipedia page, the first thing I've noticed is that you were born in Lawrence, Kansas. Yes. Did I you was. stay there long? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I, yeah. Lawrence is a great town from what I hear, but I was only there for three months. Okay, so you don't know much about it. No. <laughs> Although when I was in the Second City Touring Company, something like 28 years later, I did go back there and perform there on campus. Mm-hmm. And one of my parents' old friends was kind enough to pick me up the next day and drive me by the hospital where I was born. Oh, neat. So that's really all I've seen of Lawrence. So uh, where did you grow up then? I grew up in DeKalb, Illinois. Okay. And is that uh, like a suburb of Chicago? No, it's not a suburb. It's about 75 miles west of Chicago. So it's out kind of in the farm country. It's the home of Northern Illinois University. It's still, you know, Close to Chicago. Well, why I ask is because you talked about being in Chicago Second City, yeah. and that's part of your thing. So I was that wondering was later, if maybe yeah. that's that's how <laughs> the two connected. Maybe was because you were close enough to Chicago to where that was. You not were already... at that point. Okay. Yeah. So um, you said you know in your introduction that you uh, not necessarily in that order. Yeah. When you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as a writer first? Do you think of yourself as an audiobook narrator first, or is it kind of depending on the situation? I don't think of one or the other as first, really, I guess. It depends on what I'm working on. And I do tend to, I get focused on a thing and I do that thing while I'm doing that thing. And then when I'm done with that thing, I might get focused on another thing. But that thing doesn't define me forever. I mean, there are times when I have been an editor and that's what I've been. So I think I'm just a person who likes to tell stories and whatever form that comes in is the form I'm working in at the moment. So um, one of the things I always like to ask my writers that I interview with is, tell me the story of the first time you decided to create a story or you decided you wanted to write. Tell me that first time that you made that you decided, hey, this is something I might want to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I still have it. I wrote it in pencil and I drew pictures with it. It's called The Story of the Little Pumpkin, Mm -hmm. and it's a little convoluted and not very well spelled, but I was about six. Yeah, I wrote a story about a little pumpkin who 
apparently was conversational. <laughs> my That's first, when I started. My first story was about a polychromatic monster because our vocabulary word was poly <laughs> and polychromatic. So I, I, I totally relate to that. <laughs> what made you know that this was something you wanted to do for a living versus quote unquote just a hobby? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I, I grew up in an academic family. My father was a sociology professor. My mother was a writer and an English teacher. She had done some acting in college. My big sister had also done some acting and studied English lit. But I started acting when I was really, really young. And I was really bitten by that bug, very young. When it was time to go to college, and you know, you had to pick a major. I didn't think about being an actor. I thought about being a movie star. And I loved acting, but I didn't necessarily connect the two. But I was not quite secure enough to declare acting as my major. And I had been instructed by my parents to have something to fall back on. So my plan B was creative writing degree. So I majored in creative writing, rhetoric, and minored in theater and French and don't ask me to speak French. <laughs> it seemed sort of a natural progression in my family because of our sort of academic thrust, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the credits I saw on your Wikipedia page that perked my interest was the fact that you played Julius Caesar. I did. In Julius Caesar. I was a replacement. Okay. I was like, so it wasn't intentionally... No, but it was a proud moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had mentioned to you earlier a friend of mine who's a director and an actor named Tiger Real. Tiger had cast me in some plays. This was much later. And he was doing Julius Caesar. I wasn't in it. This was going on. I was doing something else. I don't know. And I got a call from Tiger. He was doing Julius Caesar, which actually, you know the show, Caesar isn't the main character in the right. play. It's a major role, a supporting role, but it's not the main character. It's uh, Brutus right. who's really the main character. So. He was going to be missing his Caesar for two nights because the guy got a TV show. Okay. And he didn't have an understudy. And he only had like three or four days to fill the part. And he was racking his brains for somebody to play the part. And he'd already worked with me. And he thought, well, Patria has the essence <laughs> of Julius Caesar. So and it wasn't a switch gender production. It was just he thought I had the essence of Julius Caesar, which I took as a compliment. Okay. In a way. <laughs> I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> sort yeah, of. Yeah. You know, a powerful guy who might have been a little too full of himself or maybe just a person of great strength. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. And I said, yeah, because it was a challenge and because Tiger was my friend. And so I did it. And like I said, it wasn't a huge, huge, huge part. And I think he's only on for the first half of the play. Right. Until he gets killed. Until he gets killed. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was hard for the rest of the cast because he was not playing it like I was a man. Mm -hmm. So everybody had to change their he's and him's to mm -hmm. she's and hers. It was uh, actually a great experience. According to the Wikipedia page, and I know Wikipedia is not exactly it's, it's a reliable some, it's source. It's got some errors on it. But you've worked with the RSC before. Uh, no, not no. with. Okay. I took a summer Shakespeare course in 1999 at the British American Drama Academy. Okay. 
uh, which I was rabid to take, and it was really great. I had a wonderful time. It was four weeks at Oxford, mm-hmm. and some of my teachers were members of the Royal Shakespeare Company. So that was my experience with them. Okay. Yeah. You can now say but your I could Shakespeare, not say I, you're trained. Right. <laughs> I, I am certainly trained. Uh, it has been some time since I've worked on any Shakespeare. In fact, it's been at least 10 years since I've done a stage production. But I can say that I have had teachers from the Royal Shakespeare Company. I wouldn't say I've worked with them. Okay. That's, that's not... So let's get you from your home in, in Illinois okay. to your start. Did you start writing first or start acting first? Went to college, got my degree, moved to Chicago after college, and um, started acting first. Okay. I was, you know, doing temp jobs, got an office job, got an office job at the Second City. Nice. Uh, I walked in there and saw they had a Second City as a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And they have waitressing jobs and stuff, and they didn't have any openings. But I could see that the office needed some organization, and I had experience doing that. And so I offered. I said, would you like to hire a secretary? And they decided they would. So I was the first secretary they ever had there. And um, worked in the office there for a while. And part of one of the perks of working there was that I got to take their workshops for free. Nice. So I took every improv workshop that was available to me and loved it and worked 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 until I was ready to audition for the company and in 1982 I auditioned for the company and was hired in the National Touring Company. So I toured with the touring company for three years. So after that, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) After that, I uh, worked in some equity theater in Chicago, mostly Victory Gardens Theater. I don't know if they still do this, but at the time they specialized in the playwright. So you would work directly with the playwright on new scripts. And that was a great experience. And um, so I did that until 1988, and then I moved to Los Angeles and uh, got another day job. And um, I think that's LA's yeah. unofficial slogan. Well, I hope so, because you come out here, you want to be an actor, you want to be, you know, working in TV or film or whatever. And if you can't walk right into a good paying acting job, I think you have to have a good paying day job because if you walk into an audition mm-hmm. desperate, they can smell it on you. Yeah. You just don't want to stink like you need it. You know. So you did some TV and I did a mm-hmm. couple of movies. Tell me, kind of, was writing first or was narrating audiobooks? Oh, first? writing, writing. Came okay. First. Yeah, I, I, uh, I came to LA because I, like I said, I wanted to be a star. I discovered while I was here that I liked acting. Also, that being a star required things of me that I wasn't willing to do. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'm not saying that all stars have done the things that I didn't want to do. I'm just saying that the things that I would have had to do were things that I didn't want to do. Yeah, no, so, no. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I don't want to be famous, famous. Yeah. I want to be like character actor famous, if that makes yeah. sense. Like uh, well, at a Stephen Tobolsky yeah. level, where if you, if you know that actor, 
you you get yeah. the the occasional fan, but for the most part, you can walk into oh. Target or Ralph's and right. not be overwhelmed. And I tell you, <laughs> sometimes I think, oh man, I am so glad I'm not famous. Think of think of the stress. Mm-hmm. Th- that would just be so stressful, I think. Well, and you, know? you have to be constantly on, I mean, <sighs> especially nowadays with social media. Oh my god! I mean, and heaven forbid you make one mistake. Yeah, really. Uh, nowadays, I know. So, um, in terms of the writing, what what prompted that? I mean, I know you had the creative writing, okay. but may, what made you decide that, hey, well, you want to start? I had always been writing. Starting around the time my mom died, she died in 2004, and around that time, I was in a theater company. I realized life is short, and I called from the hospital. I called the head of the theater company I was in, and this is one of those companies where you, you paid some dues, which went to renting the space, and you all put on plays together. I called the head of the company. I said, I'm from now on, my unpaid artistic time is going to be for my projects, and, and thank you very much, and I'm not going to be in the company anymore. And um, I had this story knocking around in my head about a woman who was a failing actress in Hollywood and who didn't know how to be friends with people. And I was, I guess, a failing actress. I certainly wasn't a successful one. I was getting work here and there, but I wasn't making my living at it. And um, I did know how to be friends with people, but I had this idea that she would be friends with King Arthur. And I didn't really know how to bridge that gap. But at the time, I was really disappointed in my work and my career. And it seemed like everything I was auditioning for was just stuff that I would hope, I was hoping I would make some money. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten about being an artist. I had never really quite figured out how to be an artist because I had thought, oh, I'm going to be a star. Oh, I guess I'm not going to be a star. Well, maybe I can make some money. Oh, and then it just, who cares? I mean, why do it if it's going to be so stressful and you don't even like it? What's it for? Mm -hmm. And then I heard about the British American Drama Academy and I remembered I used to like acting. (laughs) Acting itself, just for the pure joy of it, I used to really love it. And it cost money to go to England for four weeks and to study at this academy and stay at Oxford. And I got it in my head that I was going to go. And I told all my friends, don't buy me a birthday, birthday card. Give me the three bucks. I'm not going out to dinner. Every time I think about a hamburger, I'm going to put five bucks in the kitty or Mm-hmm. This was 1999. <laughs> <laughs> and I saved everything. My mother gave me some money. My sister gave me some money. Uh, my friends really did give me the three bucks instead of the birthday card. And I had some credit cards and I pulled it together. You had to audition for the school and I got in and I went. And I was able to stay there for six weeks. So I had two weeks after the acting course, which the acting course itself was unbelievable and I still have friends today that I met there. I got to have this four-week course after that two weeks of wandering around in England and I of course went to Stonehenge. I had a friend who came to see me there and we went to Stonehenge and and, uh, we wandered around Somerset area of England and um, climbed up to the top of the Glastonbury tour and we had a guide and there was a hill, I could see this hill to the southwest, and I asked him about it, and he said, oh, that's Cadbury Hill. 
that's supposed to have been Camelot. And my story kind of cranked in my mind, and I never thought of Camelot as a real place. Mm -hmm. Certainly not just some hill in Somerset, you know. And what I found out many years later was, wrong hill, that wasn't the hill. <laughs> but it still, it still got my mind going. And I came home and I started researching and it took me a long time because I wanted to write, I wanted to make the story seem real. I wanted to set it in a real place with real people. So I wanted to get the clothes right and the directions and the times and the, what they ate and all that stuff. So I really researched the hell out of it, even though it's a fanciful, it's a time travel story about a woman whose heart is broken and who needs to find out how to heal herself by learning how to be good to people. So that's what I did. So the writing did come later, but it came out of all that. Okay. Yeah. Now let's kind of transition to the audiobook narration and your voiceover okay. work. How did that come about? I'm assuming the voiceover work somewhat came from the acting. But I also know that sometimes that is not necessarily connected. When I first got here, I got this great day job. The company doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Casablanca Productions. Oh, yeah. And it was a division of a larger company. And I had worked for another division of the company. But I ended up working for Casablanca Productions. And they did commercials and stuff like that. And uh, their um, post-production supervisor, Penny Johnson, gave me some voiceover work to do. And then their staff producer, Lisa Thomas, helped get me hired by one of her clients, who I ended up working for for 15 years, doing regular weekly union voiceovers. So, you know, that was a great gig, and I learned how to do commercials that way. And commercials were never really my, you know, where my heart was. Mm -hmm. But I learned mic technique. I learned about working in a studio. I learned about working with a director and all that stuff. And... Um, the studio that I worked at doing those spots, I remember one of the engineers saying to me years ago, 10 years ago, you got to get a home studio. You got to get a home studio. That's the way the business is going. And me saying to him, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want somebody else to be the engineer. Mm -hmm. But I finally did when that long time gig ended and I wasn't really sure what to do. A friend of mine said, you should be doing audiobooks. You're a writer. You are a storyteller. You're an actor. This is perfect for you. When she started introducing me to people in the business, and it was like my passion for an art was ignited again. And now I've done two series. I did the Westwick Witches, and I just did something called the Cat Carter. I just finished it. The Cat Carter Fraud Legal Thriller series. These are both by the same author. Her mm -hmm. name is Colleen Cross. So I finished two series, so I'm still kind of a beginner. I've done eight books mm -hmm. as of this moment. And I um, can't wait to do more. I can't wait to do more. I, it's just, it's, I get to be the actor. I'm in my home studio, telling stories, playing all the parts. I'd love to do some nonfiction. It's all good. Hi, my name is Peter Kwong from Big Trouble in Little China and The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. And I'm here geeking out with Angie Fedler Sutton. Um, and don't forget, don't bite your neighbor too hard, otherwise they'll come back and get you in the end. You can find me on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon at that handle. For as little as $1 a podcast, you can support Geek Out, get the audio files a little bit sooner than the rest of the world, and receive both transcripts and behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. 
Don't forget to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. The more reviews of this podcast, the easier other people are able to find it. And now, back to my interview with Patria Burchard. How do you feel your acting approach, or does it differ when you're doing voiceover work versus acting on stage or on screen? Because I know, oh. I know there's a massive difference in terms of how theater is produced versus how film yeah. and TV is produced. I'm assuming audiobooks are the same kind of way, that they're produced completely different. Yeah. Uh, does your acting approach differ at all? Uh, do you approach it differently? Yeah. One huge difference is you don't get four to six weeks to rehearse for days maybe you do need to do some research you need to have your pronunciations straight you need to know how much vocal differentiation the rights holder be that the author or the publisher how much vocal differentiation they want between characters do they want a lot uh, my rights holder has wanted a lot of differentiation some people would rather have a little more subtlety mm-hmm. so you will have to prepare some voices or not I just recently saw a video about a book where there were two narrators, and one of the narrators actually got to go. It was a historical novel. She got to go to the home of one of the characters where this woman grew up in, like, colonial America. Boy, that's the kind of research I would love to do. (laughs) I would love to do that. But these books were set in Vancouver, and I just didn't have the research budget for that. Mm -hmm. But the approach is completely different. Completely different. For a play, you have to study the lines, you have to memorize the lines, you work with the other actors, you've got a director who's blocking you, it takes several weeks to put it all together, and you have the lights and the distance that your voice has to travel in the theater. In your audio booth, the distance is seven, eight inches, six maybe, between you and the microphone, and it's a much more intimate storytelling space. Mm Now, um, very, very briefly, kind of go over some of the stuff that you talked about in the workshop in terms of how you prepare for uh, a narration. You talked about how you, you know, you read over the book and you highlight Mm -hmm. certain stuff and kind of go over a little bit, you know, how do you approach when you're going to narrate a book? Well, I read the whole thing first so that I know, for example, who has an accent. Sometimes they they forget to tell you (laughs) (laughs) or uh, where they're from. That helps. And also, you know, it helps to know who's the killer or whatever stuff is going to be revealed later. Then I also, on my second reading, I will highlight the different characters so that as I'm reading, I don't trip up on who's saying what. And also, I have a, an app called iAnnotate that works in PDFs. You can annotate your PDF and you can record things. You can record notes. So pronunciations I can put right in there or character voices or whatever. And I can also write on the PDF if I need to make a note of something. So that's basically how I prepare the PDF. And um, then I go in and record. Unless there's further research, like accent research, do I need to study an accent? I got some coaching because I had to do extensive Venezuelan mails for one of the books. (sighs) I hope I pulled it off. I'm not sure. We'll see. The reviews haven't been awful. so. <laughs> and then just a little bit of the nitty gritty. Um, what kind of software do you use to record? Um, and then you upload it to, I think you said ACX? I've been, yeah, I've only done ACX books so far. There are several different platforms. 
Right now I record in Osen Audio, or it could be pronounced Oaken Audio, not sure. It's a Brazilian-made free download, O-C-E-N Audio. I use it because it has punch and roll, which is so much easier than trying to do cutting and pasting in different takes. I just punch and roll. When I make a mistake, go back, punch in, go. I send it to an editor. I used to edit myself, but I'm not fast enough to make it worth my while, and I end up for the entire project making about four or five dollars an hour, so it's better to have somebody else do it. Mm -hmm. But I just got a new microphone, so I'm very excited about that. Nice. My next book will be done on a Rode NT1. Now, my wife, who's a huge fan of Tenchi, will punish me thoroughly if we don't talk about that. Oh, we must, we must. <laughs> How did that come about? Was it just oh. a normal interview or well, audition or? This is why you have to be nice to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, one of my Chicago connections. I was friends with Matt Miller. I knew him in Chicago. We were buddies back then. And his wife was one of the first producers on the project. And... This was when Pioneer owned it, mm -hmm. and they invited me to audition, sent me a script. I recorded a cassette tape. Ooh. This was 1995. <laughs> nice. And I recorded a cassette tape, and I sent it in, or I dropped it by, or something, and I got the job. And uh, at the time, you know, this was 23 and a half years ago. We didn't know it was going to be popular. We didn't know anybody was going to care about it. It was an acting job. And I had a blast. It was a blast. I loved it. We had great directors. The producers were wonderful. The cast was wonderful. We did our first couple of episodes. We tried to do them in the booth together. So I actually got to work on the opposite side of the mic with Matt. No. It was a lot of fun to work with. That doesn't happen very often. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Because people don't separate their chat so that the editor can cut in. <laughs> we talk over each other. You know, it's natural. And actors certainly do. You know, we're acting. So they had to separate us. <laughs> Me and Matt, we had to be separated. That's true. Now, this was the, the English dub. So mm -hmm. obviously, you had to also kind of work with the fact that you already had existing... Uh, material to work with. Yes. How much leeway did you get in terms of what your lines were? And none. None? Okay. Yeah, no. One of the directors had also written the script. So basically, you take the Japanese, you get it translated into English, then you have to translate it again because Japanese jokes don't necessarily work in English. Then you have to write it so that the lines match the mouth flaps. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of work for the writers. And I'm glad I didn't have to do that. But once that's done, you don't get to mess with that. Or we didn't, anyway. Right. You had to match those flaps. It's not like you get to practice that either. You come in, you sit down, you have your script, you look at the screen, and you go. And I didn't always know what the episode was about. I, I was fortunate if somebody had recorded before me so I could let them lead me in and I could sort of act with them. Sometimes I was just flying blind. Now, um, we're kind of getting to the end of our interview. But I do like to talk a little bit, I mean... You said that you like the variety of, that you don't pick one versus writing over voiceover versus mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, and it's kind of just the one that you're doing currently. So asking you a favorite is not necessarily the, the best question, but um, <laughs> what would you say is, I guess, your strongest out of the, the ones? The one that if you had to only do one for the rest of your life? Wow. That's a tough one. 
I don't know that I could be happy doing just one thing. Okay. Yeah. I must admit that your story of getting into writing is kind of the way that got me a little bit into podcasting Mm -hmm. is I used to write a lot more, especially fiction. And I tried NaNoWriMo a couple of times and it got to the point where it stopped being enjoyable. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to take a break because I don't, I want to be able to enjoy writing (laughs) kind of thing. So I definitely relate to that. Yeah, that's a good point though, because I've never done NaNoWriMo and that's because I didn't want to be forced into somebody else's schedule. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of being a professional writer and sitting down and writing every day. And that's how I managed to get these two books done. But when I was done with them, I wanted to do something else. I didn't want to sit down and write another book. Mm -hmm. I have... Two other books started, but then one needs to make a living, and my books have, they sell a little bit here and there, but they have not made me a living, so. Now, I'm sure that you don't have an average workday kind of thing, uh, since you do work on multiple things, but can you give me a general idea of, like, your your work week in terms of how much time you spend on writing versus how much time you spend on audiobooks versus mm. if you're going to be doing any well, acting? Yeah. It really depends on what I have committed to. So if I've committed to doing an audiobook, that's my top priority. I work on that the most. As long as I can sit in the booth, I will sit in the booth and get as much done as possible because there, there are deadlines. I'm not only committed to the rights holder, I'm also committed to the editor who's got his own schedule to deal with. So I have to get material to him so that he can be getting it ready. Um, so it will depend on what I'm working on. I like to get my obligations to other people out of the way first. And then I can sit down and surf the web. Actually, my obligations to other people start with my dog. She's the person who is the most. And I love The second most. My husband, my dog, those are my most important obligations. And she gets her walk in the morning from me and in the afternoon from him. Do you have any, like, daily habits that you, like, you always want to write X amount of words or you always want to do anything like that? No, I don't write every day. If you want to be a professional writer, yeah, you have to write every day. And that's not my focus, so I'm off that hook. If I'm working on a story, yeah, I need to write every day. But I'm not working on a story right now. Right now I'm working on audiobooks, and it's really my almost obsessive focus at this point. And then from uh, one voiceover person to another, (laughs) do you have any kind of... Tricks is the wrong word, but tricks in terms of getting yourself ready. Like, for example, one Mm -hmm. of the things I do when I can tell I'm starting to get nervous or I'm ready Mm -hmm. to speak is I do tongue twisters because that makes me kind of separate out and I have to focus on making sure I say this right. Um, Well, I do have stuff. I mean, I I coddle my voice and I still feel terribly insecure sometimes when I get in the booth and I, and I say there there's something that I go oh my L my L that L wasn't good enough and I'll go back and say it over and over and over again to try to get it right and you know everybody has some mouth noise but sometimes especially if you're using your headphones you're like oh my god my mouth noise today is like what did I do yesterday did I have cheese <laughs> you know and I really I love cheese and dairy and you can't have that during the whole recording and what do you eat i don't know what people eat there's nothing i can eat it's miserable but you gotta eat something you know but yeah i'm sitting in the booth with my throat coat tea with mike's hot honey very good stuff and um my mouth spray and my ricola drops and my green apple and nothing is enough so i i admit to being insecure about it but i also What I do, I do do tongue twisters, but what I love to do, I've got a book, 
It was a college textbook. It's really thick, like three and a half inches thick. And it's classic poetry. And I sit and I read a couple of pages, just over-enunciating, half the time not even getting the meaning, mm -hmm. just saying these poems to, you know, warm, warm it up. up. Do you um, listen to other audiobooks, or do you mm -hmm. try and, and not let something like that influence you? No, I do. Okay. I do. Do you I have think, any favorites or um, favorite voiceover actors that you oh, prefer? I'm like, like I said, I really am just starting out. So I, I'm trying to listen to the top pros to see who they are and what they do. So there is a very close-knit community of narrators who, as far as I can tell, are just super supportive, very friendly and welcoming to other narrators and willing to help and just generous with, with advice. And, and um, right now I'm listening to a book that's nominated for at least two Audi Awards this year, which are the um, audiobook Oscars, basically, mm -hmm. and they're in March. And this narrator's name is Julia Whalen. I've never met her. I don't know if I ever will. She's like a big star, you know. Uh, but this is called Educated, and uh, she's terrific. You know? I just listened to a book by Tanya Eby. Her voice is so clear, and I'm thinking, oh, what does she do? What does she eat? <laughs> <laughs> because it, it sounds so... You know, like it comes trippingly off the tongue. And I know they have editors too, you know. But I want to listen to the people who are really the pros, the people who are really good at it. And there's a lot of them. Okay. And then if somebody wanted to get into any of them, acting, mm -hmm. writing, audiobooks, what would be your advice? Any of it. I mean, pick one or pick all three. Study. <laughs> study, study, study. You're entering a field where the competition, well, I don't even want to talk about the competition. It's not really about that. It's about finding what you're best at and making yourself better. Always making yourself better. And I think that there's always going to be somebody out there who is perhaps more accomplished or more famous or works more or whatever, for whatever reason. But if you are as prepared as you can possibly be, then when luck knocks on your door, and it will, then you'll be ready. If it knocks on your door and you're not ready, you're screwed. <laughs> so just, you know, make yourself ready. Always be studying. Always be studying. Um, if people wanted to find you, uh, where could they go? They could go to patriaburchard.com. And I'm also on Facebook at Patria Burchard or Patria Burchard Narrator. On Twitter, right? Um, yes, thank you. At Patria Burchard, yeah. Okay. yeah. And then my standard question I, I try and ask all of my interviewees uh, as you know, the title of my podcast is called Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The tagline is Everyone is Geeky About Something. So I always ask, What are you currently geeking out about and why? <laughs> what is something that you've been just super excited about and what about it excites you? That's tough. I've been working seven days a week and I have not been. People are asking me, what's my favorite for the Oscars? Mm. I haven't seen any of them. I have no idea. I did see the animated short films mm -hmm. this year, and they're all really great. So that's something. You know what I'm really geeky about? Mm -hmm. Dogs. Okay. Nice. I love dogs. <laughs> you can't bring your dog near me without me going, oh, you know, I want to. 
That's I'm one of those people who watches the cute dog videos online. I follow all the dog Twitters. And what? Why dogs? I mean, as a dog lover myself, I know. But, but yeah. and what, I love what about cats them? too. Don't yeah, get me wrong. I love yeah, I love both. But, um... I go both ways. <laughs> <laughs> what about them? Do you are, or why do you like them? Because they're such great communicators. I, you know, I don't even know if I can put reason to it. It's just that you you can be with a dog. You can just be with a dog, and they will just be with you. And there isn't any. Oh, there may be some. There there are very few situations that can't be improved by the presence of a dog. This I say that all the time. It's just having a dog there softens the edges of things and softens the edges of people and they are so they're completely without guile they don't have any agendas they don't have any ulterior motives they just want to get petted and get some snacks and they're so truthful about it they're just nothing but honest they can't lie and they, there's a lot of pleasure in, in that kind of company. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. On March 14th, 2019, Netflix announced it would not be renewing one day at a time. This is it. This is life. The one you get to go and have a ball. I've been familiar with this remake of the classic 1970s sitcom since even before it premiered. Partially because at the time, I was temping at a nonprofit that was dedicated to increasing the visibility of Latinx people in the media. I hadn't gotten into it much right away. I was shying away from traditional three-camera sitcoms, and there wasn't much about this that intrigued me outside of the diversity angle. I'd watched the original when I was younger, and remembered that I really liked it. There were very few representations at the time, with a divorced single mom at the head of the family. However, in mid-February of this year, shortly before recording the interview you just heard, actually, my depression had geared up to a noticeable level, and I was looking for something I could watch that was lighthearted and fun. The show had been garnering some social media notice at the time, as Netflix had started hinting that a fourth season was unlikely. So I sat down and gave the first episode a try. I was surprisingly delighted by the show that, while yes, did follow many of the standard tropes of the three-camera sitcom, did it in a good way. You'd think Norman Lear knew what he was doing. The show had some similarities and callbacks to the original, from the handyman being called Schneider to original show star Mackenzie Phillip being a regular guest star. But it also was very definitely a show for today's world, covering everything from immigration to PTSD to drug use to LGBTQ issues. And while yes, it does come across a bit messagey in its covering of these topics, it's no worse than any other sitcom that's out there and may actually be a bit better at it. Finally, the cast is outstanding, especially Rita Moreno, who looks to be having a field day. I easily went through the three seasons that are available, and I'm upset that Netflix chose not to renew it, not to mention the tone-deaf way they chose to announce this news. It's definitely lighthearted and fun, but it also tackles important issues and is a show that is desperately needed for the world we find ourselves in. If you have Netflix and haven't seen it yet, I recommend giving it a try. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Patria for letting me interview her. Also, thanks to actor and martial artist Peter Kwong for the mid-show plug. I had the chance to talk to him back in episode 29 at the Red Carpet for Living Among Us. A reminder that if you're in the Los Angeles area, I'm planning a Geek Out Live sometime later this year. My newsletter subscribers will hear of it first, so head on over to angiefsutton.com and sign up for my monthly dose of news and recommendations. Next month, 
I'll hopefully be interviewing the man I've nicknamed the godfather of this podcast. The Reduced Shakespeare Company is in Los Angeles in April, and I'm currently making arrangements to interview the host of their podcast, Austin Titchener, as well as Reed Martin, two-thirds of the company. Wish me luck. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknicken, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.